Welcome to the Brave Feminine Leadership Podcast, where we share stories from amazing leaders just like you and me. We break down myths of leadership, imposter syndrome, and we ask what brave feminine leadership means and does it need to change? All of these interviews were originally recorded in video format. Follow us on Instagram or Facebook at Brave Feminine Leadership for news on when new video series will be dropping. It's wonderful to meet you. Drop me a note if the content resonates. Melissa at bravefeminineleadership.com. Let's get brave. Welcome to our interview series on Brave Feminine Leadership. I'm absolutely thrilled to introduce Manny Theroux to you today. Manny, wonderful to have you as part of our conversation. Thanks, Melissa. Delighted to be here. Let me jump in for the audience and give them some background on who you are. So Manny is the Asia-Pacific business leader within the aerospace, aerospace and satellite solutions team at Amazon Web Services. So Manny works to enable the space industry to achieve its most ambitious goals through the power of cloud. And she's passionate about leveraging cloud and transformative services like machine learning, artificial intelligence, high-performance computing, satellite and data analytics to improve every aspect of the space enterprise and mission. Manny serves on a number of boards, including Smart Sat Artificial Intelligence for Space Board, and she advises the Queensland Government's Space Industry Reference Group. Manny's passionate about diversity and inclusiveness, covering women, Indigenous participation, and being a visible advocate for STEM. And earlier this year, Manny was recognised by the Women's Agenda Leadership Awards as the emerging leader in the private sector. Wow, Manny, <laughs> incredible. The day, like a long read. <laughs> the day, and, and I shortened that. There was a lot more achievements and, uh, and accolades that I could have covered. Manny, you and I met, and I'm going to ask you to give us, you know, your journey and your backstory in a minute. But um, the day you and I met was the day that uh, Richard Branson had uh, jet jettisoned off into space. I can only imagine how exciting that day was for you. I think anytime anyone goes into space, it's pretty exciting. <laughs> Fantastic. So, okay, so over to you. Tell me about you and your journey and why you are who you are. Okay. Um, well, I was uh, born in the UK. Um, I'm Sri Lankan. My parents are Sri Lankan. Um, so I was born in the UK, uh, but I grew up in Sri Lanka uh, from about five till I was about eight. Um, I lived in Jaffna. And uh, around about uh, 1987, the civil war broke out. Actually, the war broke out much earlier, but um, it sort of hit us really hard. Um, and so when I was about eight years old, um, we left. It would be more accurate to say we fled. We fled and um, my family and I ended up uh, in Zimbabwe. So Zimbabwe is actually sort of where I grew up uh, from about eight till I was uh, 16. Mm -hmm. And I think a lot of my a lot of who I am has been shaped by those two continents, maybe three, a little bit of England, but probably too, too young to remember much of uh, anything to do with the um, English countryside. So it was really just um, growing up in a very communal setting in Sri Lanka, uh, being tossed out by a civil war, which ended us, uh, which landed us in Zimbabwe, mm -hmm. which at the time, uh, so this is 1987, Zimbabwe had been seven years um, independent from British colonial rule, and the mood there was buoyant. So I grew up in an environment of, um, 
uh, it felt bad to us. Um, all sectors of community or society um, were getting on really well with each other. So the Black Zimbabweans, White Zimbabweans, um, there was no, um, much like Mandela did much later for South Africa, there was a sense of um, togetherness. Um, and, you know, there's a, I think I was highly influenced by the philosophies, Southern African sort of philosophies um, growing up because the, the, the word for it is Ubuntu. So Ubuntu is basically a form of humanism, which can be expressed in the phrase, I am because of who we all are. Mm. It's, a, it's a kind of a recognition that we are all bound together in ways that are invisible to the eye, really. But there is a oneness to humanity uh, and that we achieve ourselves by sharing with ourselves with others and caring for those all around us. So I think today, um, I mean, a, sort of a very Western context or Western society, we, we tend to sort of think far too frequently um, as just individuals. Um, it's very individualistic driven society separated from one another. Whereas growing up, I had the strong sense of connection that we are connected and what we do affects the whole world. And so that Ubuntu for me, I've carried from childhood to, I guess, to adulthood. Uh, the reminder that no one is really an island, that every single thing that you do, good or bad, has an impact on your family, friends, colleagues, society. And it's sort of always back to your mind. Uh, we need to think twice about the choices that we make and the kind of impact um, that they may have on others. What a powerful I guess, philosophy yeah. behind you. Yeah. Does that, does that give you sort of a sense for... It yeah. yeah, it really does. And so where to from, from Zimbabwe and that, that sort of beautiful, well, beautiful time growing up after what I can only imagine was a terrifying time as, as an eight-year-old? Yes, I think I've seen, um, I, think, uh, I think before the age of 16, I kind of pretty much saw it all um, because from, from sort of a very sort of desperate and dire experience going into Africa, growing up in, in beautiful Africa. And my dad was an engineer. So we sort of traveled around a lot of the Southern African continent. Um, yeah, and we just, you know, we'd go onto his projects. He was building dams, he was building roads. Um, and that, that experience then allowed him to migrate again to New Zealand. So I ended up doing my undergrad in um, Auckland. Uh, again, a beautiful place to grow up. Um, New Zealand is so multicultural. Um, so it was another sort of, um, another set of learnings that sort of uh, guide you as you're shaping yourself as a young adult human uh, and from New Zealand um, I guess uh, I uh, finished my undergrad um, and went on to Europe so I, sp I spent quite a bit of time working in the Netherlands uh, before I originally before that I then decided to come back to Australia god my life just is, is a bunch of countries <laughs> if you sum it up but um, I spent eight years in the Netherlands uh, and then uh, probably another decade in Australia uh, before uh, moving out to Singapore, where I am right now. So I've been in Singapore for the last uh, two and a half months. Okay, fantastic. So um, let's get straight into, because I'd love to hear it from your perspective, um, well, your career journey. So how did you get into the space industry? Uh, it's, a, it's a sort of an unlikely trajectory, to be honest, um, because I started out in technology and, and technology from, from a business applications perspective. Um, I did technology. I um, ended up doing quite a bit of um, 
marketing, uh, business transformation. Um, eventually, I ended up uh, about three and a half years ago at Amazon. And at Amazon Web Services, I initially started with an edtech portfolio. Um, so education technology companies, building and growing those. Um, and I had the gate privilege to meet um, Alan Finkel um, in, in that time that I was handling edtechs. And through Alan, um, I was actually able to learn a lot about um, what does the future prosperity of Australia look like? Um, Alan Finkel, of course, you'll know, uh, our, our former chief scientist for Australia, um, and, and basically, I guess, government um, advisor to the government of Australia, um, dabbled, dabbled in a lot of different things. So he's working on hydrogen strategy, there was space, there's a whole bunch of um, other things written. And I was, I was just, I guess I was like a little bit of a sponge just learning off him. And he, he sort of led me to, um, he connected me to Megan Clark, who's actually the first CEO of the Australian Space Agency. And um, it, sort of, it sort of really just went from there. I think I just wrote myself a script for how I would uh, get Amazon to start looking at the Australian space industry, which has now sort of evolved into all of Asia. There's a whole uh, business unit that's been stood up in the last 10 months at Amazon. Um, so it's kind of just grown. I've written myself my own script, so it, it couldn't be more wonderful. And that wasn't necessarily where you envisaged yourself going, though, was it? Because I know you explored a number of things along the way. So what did you explore along the way? What were some of the paths you took? Oh, I've done, um, you know, and I still don't know where I'm going to end up. It's, it's Life is just seem, seemingly a, <laughs> a journey and um, every, every, every corner I turn seems to be there's something there or we must spend some time looking at this. Um, I did, yeah, I did. Um, so I have a master's in international relations. And before I decided I would spend quite a bit of time in the technology sector, um, I did think that I would do more sort of development work. Um, and I went back to Africa uh, for one of my um, thesis subjects. I worked in South Africa for a couple of months trying to set up an NGO. Um, and there's parts of me that uh, have sort of dabbled and wanting to write and do sort of other things. Um, I guess we all have so many different passions we want to explore, right? Um, but I think there's a time and time and place for everything. So I think I'm at, at that stage where I feel like I'm, I've immersed myself uh, into this world at the moment. It's, uh, it's space and space is not just, you know, rockets and technology, but it's actually economic development. Uh, there's women in STEM. There's a, there's a ton of different things that um, space brings together for me at this point in time. Mm -hmm. And so I've kind of settled into this role or this place. Um, and I'm sort of leaning in hard to see how much impact can I make across the board? And impact has always mattered to you. I remember when we first met, you were talking about you'd been to the United Nations and you were influenced heavily there at one point on your journey as well. Yes. So it was actually the, um, the International Criminal Court um, in, in The Hague. Okay. Um, I used to walk past and they would have trials which um, public citizens, you, you know, you can sign in and go and go and look at it. And my thought at that stage, um, I was writing a paper, a dissertation on uh, war crimes, uh, you know, how to try the Sri Lankan government for war crimes uh, as a student, of course, as a, as a master's student. Um, and it was a very interesting exercise um, because it's, um, you, you know, theoretically, there are things in, in the world, in life that should not happen, but they do. Um, and then these acts of injustices still need to be seen through to trial, 
Um, there has to be some sort of reparations made to the community that suffered. Um, and so I guess I was kind of exploring how that would work. Um, I was very idealistic uh, because of course there's justice that justice does, you know, it, there's wheels of justice and it turns very slowly. So um, in some ways, um, if, if you can if you can get it if you're the if you're a community that suffered uh, and you can get it then then it's good but um, it's almost after the fact because you know for the ones that we've lost in war um, or in strife of some sort um, it's a little too late but um, um, I guess I just wanted to explore what that was like um, to see if I could throw myself at something um, that restored the world in some way shape or form uh, I kind of actually walked away from that thinking. I couldn't do it at that point. Mm. Um, and technology was far more malleable. I could put my arms around it. I could see the impact that I was making or creating. Um, international relations, political science. Um, there's still a lot of me that's idealistic and would like to change the world, but um, uh, perhaps it's better served by uh, different parts of, uh, I guess by folks who are who can throw themselves at it and not feel so troubled by what they see. I think I'm, um, uh, perhaps it's a weakness, but I have sensitivity. So when you're so immersed in, when you've come from a, a place of being um, wronged, uh, it's very difficult to be the one that goes after justice. I think it's, um, you know, there's just too, too much closeness to Close. it. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Manny, I, I can't wait to see how all the different threads of your background and your career and your passions, um, you know, continue to kind of come together um, and the path that they, that they take you on. I think it's going to be incredibly exciting to watch. Manny, I'd love to get your perspective. You know, the one of the reasons behind um, doing this uh, Brave Feminine Leadership interview series was starting to explore why we're seeing some really good traction at board level in Australia, if I just focus on Australia for a minute. Um, and we've just surpassed the 30% target that was set for the ASX 200 in terms of female uh, representation. When you come to executive levels, um, we're still not quite seeing enough traction. We're not seeing enough women go into kind of large P&L roles or CFO roles, which typically are the roles that lead to CEO. Um, and I just, I'd just love to get your perspective. You've worked across so many countries. You've experienced a number of different countries. And I wonder if there's anything in that that you can draw on. But why do you think we're not seeing traction? Or why do you think the numbers have stalled in terms of female leaders? So when I look at Australia, um, and for me, I think, let's take Christine Holgate. Uh, she's kind of captured the zeitgeist on this for me, I think, um, on why we're not seeing that movement. Um, I saw a powerful CEO who was who was bullied, who was harassed, who was humiliated, and you know there's been some redress made now. Um, but something of this magnitude, it was then you know I thought it couldn't get any bigger, but then it was dwarfed in seriousness by the sexual harassment crisis that engulfed the Morrison government and appalled the nation. You know then we had Brittany Higgins, we had revelations of toxic male culture in the Australian in Australia's Parliament House um, and we saw women marching in Canberra I mean it, it triggered a, a public outpouring uh, from women across the spectrum um, of their mistreatment of mistreatment at the hands of men so 
<laughs> you know, if I'm going to answer the question very simply, is that on top of concerns about the lack of safety, uh, respect and, and equality for women in the workplace, there's, there's other stats, and we know all the stats, you know, um, women are not being paid the same as men. Women um, have, it, it's not easy for us to balance these full-blown careers and have a family. You know, there's a lot around parental leave that's being talked about. And then, and then there is, uh, you know, I think we've got a long ways to go towards this, but um, there's always that four-letter word, um, bias. Um, and I think one of the most significant barriers to women's progression towards um, uh, CEO board level positions has been the unconscious bias in, in recruitment practices and the tendency to rely on personal networks. It's, you know, my buddy here um, can do this instead of maybe going through the process. Mm. Um, can I ask you personally, have you, um, you know, do you feel like you've run up against those biases or, um, you know, have you run up against any of the, um, you know, sometimes you hear um, the sort of double binds that are leveled at women about, you know, too aggressive or too ambitious, um, too soft, or, you know, have any of those labels come your way in your career so far? Okay, so I think in terms of the bias, I think I've been pretty lucky. I've had a lot of strong uh, mentors, counsellors, uh, sponsors, and look, even if I have been discriminated against, I haven't felt it. <laughs> Maybe I'm just so, you know, insensitive, I can't feel that bit. Uh, but the double binds thing is definitely something that I think women do all day, every day, uh, myself included. You know, it's the whole, it's like the Goldilocks thing. It's not too hot, not too cold, just right. You've got to be just right. Um, and you can, you can be competent, but not tough. You can be friendly and personable, but, you know, you can rarely be, both friendly and competent and like there's, there's we, we're held to different standards mm. um and like it's it's you know in addition to being extraordinary we still have to play the game where we're judged on appearance and behavior um and and there's cultural variations you know in in terms of what's acceptable but the, the, the general theme is kind of universal right uh, you want a well-tailored non-threatening attractive but not sexy you know appearance matched with intelligence and knowledge who can be calm and direct but not forceful yes. um, so you know we're constantly juggling we're constantly balancing and we have to sort of I've learned to modulate behavior so occasionally we adopt what's considered maybe masculine traits and other times we switch back to um, caring compassionate traits so Yes and no. <laughs> it's, one, of yeah. our, um, one of the conversations um, in the series, um, I was talking to Sally Hayden and uh, Sally's a, a wonderful executive out of the telecommunications space primarily. And um, Sally was talking about the fact that she had almost two personas and she was quite young when she moved into quite senior leadership roles and she was very often the only female at the table, which I'd love to ask you about too in a minute. And she said those two personas were one was um, she pretended to play golf. She learned the lingo in golf, you know, all of that to because she felt she just couldn't communicate unless she could buy into some of that. Um, ever felt that? 
so yeah, I haven't I haven't learned basketball. I haven't learned golf. I I I couldn't you know if a ball hit me, I couldn't tell you whether it was a football or a rugby ball. <laughs> so, no, I haven't done any of that. But I get I take your point about uh, language uh, inclusivity in that sense. You know when you when you hear words like uh, titans or captains of the industry, you know it's still it's still a very masculine connotation, right? You don't immediately think of a woman when you hear those words. So kudos to her for you know positioning herself to and you know angling into those guys into into getting into their i guess their their club um uh, yeah i mean if you can do it great but i'm i'm not so inclined i think i still think they can come i don't know learn about crochet i don't do crochet or knitting but i mean like why does it have to be that way right it can yeah it can be whatever we want it to be so i guess yeah uh, i'm I'm for, you know, I'll be me, um, you be you, and I'm sure we can find commonalities. It doesn't have to be golf. Yeah, I love that. So there's no secret golf in your background, and there's plenty of women who love golf, so nothing against golf. Golf, yeah. <laughs> Talk to me about the Netherlands, because you felt, I think, a quite different experience there when we first spoke in terms of professionally. I think so. I think, um, look, I think um, European women have sort of, gone the whole hog maybe 40 or 50 years ahead of Australia they've had their argy-bargies and I see a lot of European women I mean you can you know just in the public sector Christine Lagarde Angela Merkel most of the women that I've met in the Netherlands for instance are very sort of forthright direct um, there's no I guess there's no hesitancy uh, of women in leadership positions it's it's just such a it's a no-brainer for them. So when I worked there and I came to Australia, uh, you could see, you could just see the difference. Um, and, you know, I would love for us, I'd, I'd love for us to be in that position, uh, but I think there's still some ways to go. Mm. Last um, thing that I focus on in this particular regard, but so you have been the only female at a table at various points in your career or not? Oh yeah, all the time. <laughs> I think um, with the industry you're in, have you heard of the term gender deafness? No, I haven't heard that term. So um, this came out of, um, and in fact, I don't, I don't know that she coined the phrase, but um, Annabelle Crabb recently did a TV series here, misrepresentation. misrepresentation. Yeah. yeah, I haven't, I haven't watched a couple of episodes, but please, yeah, it's it's wonderful, you know, terrible and wonderful, and and all those things mixed in at the same time. But Julie Bishop spoke about gender deafness at various points when she was the only female um, in the room. And I hear so many women reporting this, that they'll be in a room as the only female, they will raise an idea or say something. And it's like that idea is not heard. And then, you know, five or so minutes later, a guy might put that idea on the table. Um, and all of a sudden it's, yeah, that's a great idea. Have you ever felt that? Yes, I mean it happens all the time, and and um, I, I don't even know if the men know that they're doing this. I'm, I'm sure on some level they do, but um, I, I think these are the. I, I see it as another form of mansplaining. You know, you've <laughs> you've 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 you, you're you've literally briefed them on what it is, and then two days later you get the email or in a meeting, you know, it's thrown back at you, and you're like, hang on, I'm the one who gave you that idea, or you know, we brought it up first. Um, it happens. Yeah, I'm, I'm no stranger to that then. So can we just call halt to that now? Because there will be guys watching this, incredible guys, 
Um, so even if you're not the one doing this, can we just ask you to pull your colleagues up who are or to say something in support of the female in the room who's raised the, um, raised the issue, even refer back to it. Like, Manny, what a fantastic idea. Didn't you just say that? <laughs> I think, yeah, I think, you know, their meeting practices, um, particularly with um, institutions that have um, DNI, who are taking DNI uh, diversity and inclusion seriously, um, we're actually getting, um, yeah, there's quite a bit of uh, chatter around this, and we're getting practices to reinforce um, what we think are positive ways to engage, and, and particularly for women to be heard at the table. So STEM, you're a passionate advocate for STEM. And I know you were influenced by a certain Walter Isaacson quote. So kind of what is that quote and what drew you into this space? So the, so I, I'm, I'm very passionate about STEM uh, because I think it's um, the key to uh, unlocking a lot of um, economic empowerment for women. Uh, and, and, you know, there's so many different fields that you can, um, you can do that in. Uh, but given the direction that our world is uh, going in terms of digital and technologies, um, I think STEM is a good place to start. Um, the Walter Isaacson quote. Um, okay, that for me is a little bit more um, right brain, left brain. So um, I, think, I think it's something to do with um, integrating beauty um, into your life. Um, uh, and so this is sort of hippie. It's not hippie, there's science behind it. But for me, uh, beauty is something that sort of exalts the mind and spirit. Um, we, we often feel and sense beauty more than we can see it. So when we're in the presence of beauty, um, and it can be a beautiful, beautiful piece of music, uh, it can be a magnificent painting, uh, you could just be sitting on a rock by the ocean, but we subjectively inhabit a space of creation. For me, it's very sacred, you know, and you can, you can sit in nature and you can, I don't know, like I said, listen to the birds, bird songs, or look at the night sky with stars. Um, it actually affects our consciousness by giving us experiences um, that challenge um, the lens through which we see things. So there's there's emotional, spiritual, um, psychological processes that I think beauty can bring into your life. It's, it's pretty transformative. Mm. And um, I think it has the ability to create positivity. It has the ability to uh, make you more creative. Um, I think it allows us to, it's very restorative. It, in, 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 it inspires us to, to dream, to create, to innovate. Uh, and to connect with each other, you know, when we're in that place of um, optimal, uh, what's the word? They, you know, they, they call it flow states. Yes. So, yeah, it's, when you're in that zone, I think it's been shown, it's been proven that creative innovation um, uh, is in, has been inspired by the pursuit of beauty. So How do that's, you the, that's the link to the Isaac Waltzons. Yeah. How do you get yourself in that space? So I do a lot of, uh, I spend a lot of time in solitude. Mm. I, I spend a lot of time in nature. I, um, uh, I journal. I, um, I just spend a lot of time reflecting, I think, or sitting, you know, I can sit for hours at a coffee shop when coffee shops are open mm. um, and just, you know, have a cup of coffee and watch the world go by. Um, and there's lots of things that's happening. Um, and I think it's um, it's to do with giving yourself space, you know, because we live in a day, we live in times now that are so 
we're harried. We, I think time is probably the most luxurious gift that you can give yourself these days. So the ability to stay still, um, I'm, I can't meditate, but for me, the ability to just sit still for a while and do nothing but observe externally, internally, um, gets you into quite a Zen space, which allows you to then operate at a much higher uh, performance level. It leads into a question I wanted to ask you. You know, I, um, I sort of, I feel like we are so busy doing, doing, doing. Um, you know, we are incredibly busy. And often I think people don't create that space to really reflect potentially about the impact they're having on others. And in one of these conversations, one of our speakers even went so far to say that they've seen some incredible people who won't reach their ultimate leadership potential because they just don't stop. They're not self-aware. Does that resonate with you? Oh, 100%. Um, I think, you know, um, it can be half an hour in the day. It can be a weekend. You know, I used to go on retreats once a year. I would just go away. And again, a retreat, not, not in the sense of a spa and, you know, uh, a girl's weekend out. No, it was literally a retreat, a solitude where you just reset everything um, at a mental level, uh, physical level. Uh, you get, you, you, you sort of regain a sense of clarity uh, and that, I think, I think that stillness is something that um, everyone um, should be aspiring for. Um, mm. I think you, you've talked about this, um, less doing and more being, being, more feeling, because then sort of everything makes sense when you're on, in that zone. Can I ask you about sponsors? So changing a little bit, you talked before about having had wonderful sort of mentors and sponsors along the way. Um, did they find you? Did you find them? How did that relationship come about? So to be honest, I don't have any formal um, mentors or sponsors. Um, and I think for me, I've always um, shunned the idea of someone, someone, I guess there's a difference between being inspired by someone and elevating someone to a position of where you're always like, oh, I must, I must learn from you. I mean, that sounds really, um, that's not a lot of uh, humility in that, but as I've, I've always um, believed that we are all the same in many respects. Absolutely. And we have different skills and strengths to offer each other. Yeah. So I've tended to, I've, I, I find myself gravitating towards individuals who are, who have something, you know, who have something that attracts me to them and, and they, for some reason, see something in me. So it's always been a two-way connection. Beautiful. Um, yeah, and it's and it's. I think it's important. I think it's important to have someone who can give you feedback, who watches your evolution, uh, who's honest, who's constructive, uh, because feedback often isn't always the hardest thing to receive. Uh, but someone who's kind and compassionate, but can also see the potential in you. So, um, and and I think I found these um, my folks come and go, come and go. It's for different phases of your life, for different moments in your career. Um, so I've tended to, I mean, I have a, a huge uh, network of friends, counselors, professional friends. I don't, I don't know what the right word is. Yeah. Um, but we're, you know, it's going back to that being that very threaded connection. We all find, I think we find the right person at the right time. And of course, you've got to be willing to put yourself out there and go out and reach out and make those connections. So networking, a lot of people struggle with the concept of networking. Yeah. 
um, and you do have a really large network, what, what has that been about for you? And I guess, you know, could you help people who perhaps feel a bit reticent about it? So, yes, I can, I can share a little bit on that. Um, and, and it's interesting because, um, so I, I consider myself an introvert. I am an introvert, I know, through Myers-Briggs and whatever. Um, so it's not my natural tendency to want to go out and socialize or connect with a large group of people. I, I like my one-on-ones and I don't mind small groups, but it's, it, it was never my thing. Networking was never my thing. Um, and at some point, one of my counselors pointed this out, you know, it's, um, it's a self-imposed barrier mm. because the superficial networking is, is very transactional. It's, it's what can you do for me? What can I do for you? Um, I've sort of moved away from that. I don't think of it as a dirty word anymore. For me, it's really putting in time and effort to, to creating genuine relationships that are mutually interesting and beneficial. And in the corporate context, it doesn't have to start with something related to work. Um, uh, I've been fortunate, you know, I've been sort of finding friends on LinkedIn or they find me or I find them. Uh, and it's really through, through these sort of ancillary pursuits or side hustles, personal passions. You know, it's, it could be women in space, women in tech, um, STEM, whatever it is. They are topics that can lead to deeper connections or you can build deep, deeper connections based on that. It's, so it's, it's quite the opposite of small talk. It's not, you know, how's the weather and okay, now how, how am I gonna help you navigate your, um, navigate this organization to get to a promotion? So it's not that. Um, and I think once, I saw, oh, okay, it's not really that. It's it's a lot more, it's a lot more long-term and it's a lot more grounded in in real conversations. I think that sort of barrier just dropped and I was able to have conversations. I have conversations uh, once a week, once <laughs> once or twice a week, I will put aside time to talk to someone new or if they reach out, um, you know, give, give them some time, find out what's, um, in some ways it's paying it forward in many other ways it's never paying it forward because invariably there's there's some um there's there's always something there's always something in it for everyone so I think if you if you don't think about networking as something just you know a social drink um and especially especially now during COVID times uh, it's a virtual cup of tea um you can talk about anything about your family about how you're doing uh in lockdown and then it leads to other things so do you just approach people, um, you know, cold kind of thing when you talk about a virtual cup of tea or something like that? Or is it through other people you know? Um, no, so I don't, I don't um, unless there's a specific reason why I want to go after someone brand new, uh, it's, always, it's always via, via someone. Yes. Um, but I'm, I'm not averse to cold calling if I have to. I don't do that. Um, but introducing myself on LinkedIn these days to someone that I would potentially want to do business with, it's not as scary as it used to be for me. I know my value and I know that I'm going after a long-term relationship. So it's not a, it's not a simple, hey, I just want to connect with you. Have you always known your value or did it take you time to get to that point? No, I think it takes time. Uh, I think um, anything to do with um, learning your own self-worth and value uh, comes from uh, having the confidence to acknowledge who you are and what you've done. Um, so no, I was, um, I was, I'm not as half as confident as I am today as I was in my twenties, for instance. Yes. Um, yeah, I was terrified of talking out, talking up. Um, and I 
you know, I'm the kind of person in you know, back of the classroom, uh, just because I don't, I don't want to talk at all. <laughs> so yeah. you found your voice somewhere along the way. I did. And I, I have to say, um, it, it wasn't, um, it's not a verbal voice for me. So I tend to write a lot. Um, I'm very comfortable writing. Um, in this digital world, um, particularly uh, now that we can't actually, we're not socially mobile, the writing actually seems to work because uh, I'm behind the screen, but it seems to touch so many people. So I've tended to write a lot of pieces and they're not all strictly work-related. So if you go through my LinkedIn profile, I tend to write about anything, whatever catches my attention that particular week. Mm. Um, and it's nice. It's comforting to know that people respond to more than just uh, white papers or, you know, here's a product that we're selling. It's just, it's more hum human, I guess, more human interest pieces. So um, how do we get more girls into STEM? Oh, I think... Um, we have to we have to show them that there's more of us in there um, so that's one of the things i really enjoy doing with my jobs you know we get uh, we get the chance to talk to universities go to schools um, and tell them it's you know it's possible to work in the space industry and i don't have a rocket science degree i'm not a rocket scientist uh, there's so many different ways you can do this um, uh, and i think for for me the key as i as i mentioned before is tying education or stem to um, economic prosperity and giving girls, women, the confidence that they can stand autonomously on their own two feet, um, fend for themselves. Um, you know, there's a, a intellectual capital, social capital. They don't have they don't have to depend on anyone for these things. They can be their own women. They get to call all the shots. So, for me, it's that linkage. And then there's, of course, if you're passionate about physics or or biology or chemistry then there's all of that too so not to you know downplay the the true um i guess the academic side of things because i i um my undergrad is in physiology and um i was i was meant to start off in medicine and i, I just couldn't stand it you know because this is the typical uh, i guess the southeast asian upbringing you you um your parents expect you you know <laughs> to graduate and either be a doctor an engineer or a lawyer um, otherwise you're the family disgrace so it's like you, you kind of are forced down a certain pathway almost uh, but I think that's that's sort of changing now um, uh, and now that we have choice more and more girls are sort of falling away from STEM and leaning into um, I don't know um, <laughs> again it's, it's the I guess it's the the world is shifting so there's a lot more digital opportunity you know it's more digital marketing and you know the, you've seen the, the the movement on tiktok and uh, it's, it's the, the attention is going into places which are uh, which may be interesting but as a long-term career choice i think uh, we still need to encourage them to come back come back in here because here's where here are the tools that are going to give you maybe the keys to leading a fulfilling life I remember in my first series, I spoke to Louise Adams, who's the CEO of Oricon, so a large engineering services firm, and she is an engineer. And she talked about a lovely story about her grandfather who showed her bridges. And she had this incredible dream that she wanted to build bridges because it was going to save communities. Um, and, you know, she talked about the fact that one of the keys to getting girls involved in STEM is for there to be a bigger purpose or a dream behind it. And in many ways, that's what I've just heard you say. Absolutely. I mean, um, I, I can't, um, yeah, the, you know, there's so many amazing 
women scientists, researchers, engineers, uh, particularly in the space sector. And, and Australia has no shortage of them, right? So we have, um, like I said, Megan Clark was the first um, CEO of the Australian Space Agency. And the Space Agency actually has a lot of um, women leaders. Um, they have Aude Vignelles, she's the CTO, uh, Antoinette Daly. Uh, and it's not just the agency, you know, it's across um, space in Australia. We have Dr. Sarah Pierce, you know, she's looking after the Square Kilometre Array Programme. There is Carly um, Scott, and she looks after the first, one of our first um, Australian space ports in Australia, the Northern Territory. And that's, you know, running off Indigenous um, land. She's, you know, she's super inclusive. And the way that women um, entrepreneurs, scientists, and engineers are doing this is completely different from what's been done before. And if we can share a fraction of that to the girls today, and, and you know, so I'm talking about Australia, because of course, this is yes. where I've spent the last 10 years, but I'm now in Singapore, and in Singapore, in India, and Japan, Korea, the same thing. Um, I have this beautiful picture um, of women. You know, the first uh, Mars mission was actually done by, um, by, by the Indian team, the ISRO um, uh, group. Um, and 80% of that mission was run by women. Wow. And there's a gorgeous picture of all these women in saris and, you know, they've got flowers tied in their hair and they're celebrating when, you know, it, uh, when the rover hits Mars and I'm just like, wow. Uh, and these are women, you know, um, who not just work and they still go home, they still have to put food on the table and they still have to look after the kids. And I think these women, these are super women. Uh, and it, it, you know, I kind of think they should almost be a campaign for around um, what I think are actually, you know, they're ordinary women uh, who are doing super, super extraordinary things. Um, if we can sort of showcase all that to girls, why wouldn't you get excited? And, and, and that's just the technologist in this space or in this sector. But there's also uh, women in space law. There's uh, Donna Lawler uh, who's doing stuff like that. There is space medicine. So, you know, um, there's, you know, at some point they want artists because we can't just go into space. It's, it's very sort of cold and dark and miserable, actually. So <laughs> why would you want to leave Earth again? Anyway, but um, we need artists to, you know, to bring that all to life. We're going to have extended um, periods or uh, stays in space. Then, yeah, we need our artists. Assistance. So, you know, there's a whole array of things which I think, um, we can get girls pulled into but um if we can if we can get it started and show them that bigger vision or the picture like you said um yeah i think i think yeah we're in for a Maddie, ride. that is incredible you may have just sparked off my next series because i just simply don't think people know enough about this um so um how incredible i didn't i was not aware of you know all of those names and those figures i think that's really incredible oh, i've got a hundred of them we can we should definitely do something you know we should make stem sexy and we should yes. get the girls in here instead of tiktok where they're doing the makeup stuff again nothing wrong with doing makeup but it's just there's so much cooler stuff they could be doing i mean i'll I keep an eye out for you on tiktok uh, <laughs> <laughs> beliefs about women in space Maddie, um it brings me to the final question that i do ask everybody which is from your perspective what does brave feminine leadership look like and do you think it needs to change I think we're getting there in the sense of if I look at um, just what's happened last year, this year in Australia, um, I think women are tired of the status quo um, and things are changing, uh, but it's not something that's done deal yet. So I think we have to keep keep at it. Um, I, I keep, you know, I think every woman imagines a better world where 
inclusive leadership is the norm. Mm. In, a, in, a, in a corporate context, that has to come with integrity. It has to come with self-awareness. It has to come with um, empathy and courage and respect and you know, basic ability to communicate. Um, and some of this is not, it's not happening now. <laughs> so um, I, I want to get to a place where we are celebrating compassionate um, management rather than, you know, let's just scale the next unicorn at whatever the cost. I think, you know, we need to recognize that any organization, however successful it is, it's made up of thousands of people pushing a, a vision forward. Um, and, and, and good leaders ultimately lead people, not just a company. We tend to, in, at least in corporate worlds, we, we tend to talk about companies and forget that a company is actually, you know, the sum part of all its, of all its people. And we know that, we know that women make a tremendous difference in leadership positions. We know that, and um, there's research and in and, and, and thematic research that shows that companies are better off when we have more women in leadership roles. Mm -hmm. Um, particularly when it comes to innovation, unlocking, you know, more business growth and driving positive social and environmental change. Um, and I think, I think I'd like to see this world, more and more of this world, more dynamic women with purposeful agendas and unwavering drive. You know, they're not distracted by egos. They're not hot-headed. They're just calm. <laughs> you know, they know how to run a home. So that must mean then they know how to manage complicated stakeholders. They know how to get things done. Um, yeah, I, I, I guess, you know, a hundred years ago, we had the subgets and, you know, we've come another hundred years, but I think this will take another, another while. I don't want to say another hundred years. That feels like uh, too damn long, but um, I think we need to keep going at it. Um, uh, but I'm, I'm, I'm proud to be a part of this wave or this generation of women who are, not settling, mm. I'm not settling. Um, <laughs> uh, and, you know, it, it, we're not angry women. Um, we're not unhappy women. We could be, um, but we're discontent, maybe happily discontent. Uh, we want it to be better. We want it to be better for the, for the next generation of girls who come after that. For the girls and the boys, I should say, um, because of course, as a parent, you, you know, you juggle both. So yeah, does that help? Um, thank you so much for joining this conversation. I have just absolutely loved your, uh, you know, considered and thoughtful and energetic uh, kind of style in terms of approaching this. And I know that it will resonate with the audience. So thank you for being part of our conversation. I really appreciate it. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for having me. Hello there. If you're enjoying the podcast and would love to accelerate your own growth and leadership, then head to bravefeminineleadership.com forward slash brave tips for your gift from me, where I've captured all of the amazing tips and themes that came out of these conversations. I hope they help you feel your brave rising.